Um, I invite you please to turn in your Bibles back to Genesis 3. Please do have the passage open in front of you. When we think uh, about the events that are happening in this passage or in Genesis 3, we have to admit that the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden can sometimes feel like one of the most well-known biblical stories. From Renaissance paintings to comedy shows, it's been portrayed many times. And the problem is that we can feel that we know something so well, we tend to gloss over what actually happens in it. Aren't these verses, after all, just wrapping up the end of Genesis 3 before we get on to the next big story about Cain and Abel? Do they really have that much to teach us? Well, one of the most remarkable things about Scripture is that even if you think you know a passage, even if you've read it a hundred times, the Lord still speaks through it. We realize the assumptions we had were wrong, and we look at it again with fresh eyes. So just take verse 24, for example. Just have a little look at that. If you've ever seen a painting, a classical painting, or perhaps even a children's Bible, then the chances are that the mental image you have is of this scene having in it uh, an angel who maybe looks like a nice, handsome man in a white robe carrying a sword. Or even worse, perhaps when you think of a cherub, your natural thought is of a little baby with wings being cute and mischievous. But the description of cherubim in Scripture aren't really that cute. The prophet Ezekiel saw cherubs, they saw cherubim, and more than once, in fact, and he described them in this way, and just listen to this, a human likeness. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces and each had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, They had human hands. Now, if that sounds strange to you, then that's because it is strange. These are heavenly creatures of immense power, and we struggle to describe them in human terms. And yet, somehow in our thinking and in our illustrations, we've domesticated them, made them safe. But the moment that you remember what cherubim are actually like, then the scene of verse 24 changes. God puts these frightening creatures at the east of the garden, and suddenly we're forced to think, why is this necessary? What could be so important as to require guarding by these fierce cherubim? Now, we will come on to those questions in a moment, but doesn't this example show that we've always got to be a keen reader of Scripture? We've got to pray that God would always give us a fresh insight into his word. Sometimes passages that we think we know 
actually have something very new to teach us. Because if we read this morning's passage as just God kicking unwanted people out of his garden, or even just of the wrapping up of the events of Eden, then we'll actually miss what it shows us about God's kindness. The passage is shot through with both God's judgment and God's grace. And this will probably sound bizarre to us. I mean, even after the rebellion of Adam and Eve, even after the shame of the fall and the pronouncement of judgment, God shows grace to them. And a grace which isn't based on a mere tolerance, but on real costly love. So we'll take it this morning in three parts. First of all, First of all, we will see God's judgment against humanity. Secondly, we'll see in verses 20 and 21 that despite everything, the relationship between humanity and God continues. And thirdly, we'll see that the expulsion from the garden is actually an act of love. So first of all, we'll see God's judgment. We must not minimize God's judgment against humanity in any way. We're told in verse 24 that God drove the man out. Adam and Eve were forcefully expelled from the garden. They were expelled from the presence of God. And I am sure that Adam and Eve did not want to leave, but God banishes them. And the cherubim now guard the entrance with a flaming sword. The garden is totally closed off. The sword points in all directions. No one can enter without facing the wrath of heaven. What a change for Adam and Eve. Back in chapter 2, Adam was placed in the garden, we're told, to work and take care of it. Guarding the garden had been Adam's job. But now the cherubim are doing that role. And the garden must be guarded against Adam. He has become the very evil that he was supposed to protect against. You see, the garden had a specific role in God's plan. Earlier in this chapter, in our reading, we saw how God's presence was in the garden. When God appears in the garden... After the fall, we're told, walking in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve didn't take it as unusual. The garden was the Lord's dwelling place on earth. It's where he met with his people. But now it is being guarded by cherubim. Now, I just ask you to think for a moment, where else do we see cherubs and cherubim in the Bible? Well, They are wherever the Lord is. They are ones who serve him and wait on him. So, like we've already said, when the prophet Ezekiel saw a vision of the Lord, he saw the cherubim. And they're on the mercy seat. That's the the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, where God would speak from inside the tabernacle and the temple. But they're also on the curtain before you get the Ark. In the temple, the image of the cherubim guard the way into the most holy of holies. They stop people from entering. And if you think 
for a moment about the decoration in the rest of the temple or in the tabernacle. That decoration is palm trees, fruit, flowers. It's all reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. The tabernacle and the temple are even entered from the east just as Eden was. So the fact here that in Genesis we see cherubim guarding the entrance to Eden, blocking the way into the Lord's presence, shows to us that in effect it was the first earthly temple of the Lord. The temple and the tabernacle were made so God could dwell with Israel, but that wasn't a new idea. They were many recreations of the Garden of Eden. The Lord's plan was always to dwell with his creation. It was always to be with his people. The purpose of humanity was always to glorify God and to enjoy him forever in his presence. And Adam had enjoyed being in the Lord's presence, meeting him face to face. He had, in effect, been the first priest but he had thrown it all away. When the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, he promised them they would become like God, knowing good and evil. No longer would they have to worship God or glorify him. Instead, they would dethrone God. In his place, they would be worshipped. They would be the ones who were to be glorified. But it was a lie. Oh, they came to know good and evil, all right. God even declares in verse 22 that Adam has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. But what a difference. The Lord knows good and evil because he is wholly good. He knows evil in the sense that he knows everything which is in rebellion against him, against his holy righteousness. But when the Lord says that Adam has become like one of us, he means Adam has become corrupted and evil. Adam now knows good and evil, but from the opposite end, he has done evil and rejected the good. The difference between the two is massive. It's as big a difference as a child learning about war in the classroom from their teacher and a child becoming a child soldier to experience war firsthand. The child has lost their innocence and can never return to the way they once were. And so Adam is expelled from the garden to work the ground from which he had been taken. In our reading from verse 19, we're told that by the sweat of his brow, he would eat his food until he returned to the ground, since from it he was taken. The wages of sin are death, and now Adam is receiving those wages. He will work the ground, and one day he will return to it. A sinful Adam cannot be permitted to enter into the presence of a holy God. The holiness of God is so perfect that it's totally incompatible with sin. You may as well try mixing light and darkness. So the unclean man is expelled from the temple of the Lord, unable to return. And this is still the problem that we see in humanity around us today. The world is full of people 
who want to live for themselves, who bristle at the idea of worshipping and glorifying God. And we don't have to look very far to see what impact it has had on the world. Humanity is still in rebellion against God, still refuses to obey his commands. It's still, as it were, on the wrong side of the cherubim, cut off from the presence of God and under his judgment. Everyone needs a solution to this problem. And yet, surprisingly, God has not stopped his relationship with humanity. And on to our second point, that the relationship continues. Despite the pronouncement of judgment on Adam and Eve, the relationship between them and God is not ended. We see this, first of all, through an act of Adam, and then by an act of God. The act of Adam is quite simple. In verse 20, Adam calls his wife Eve. God has promised that Eve would have children. And in verse 15, we're told that one out of those children, one would come who would crush the head of the serpent, defeating evil forever. And Adam here is responding to this promise. He calls his wife Eve the life giver as an act of faith that God's promises can be trusted. Adam has tried the alternative. He was deceived into thinking that God wasn't trustworthy and he rebelled against him, eating the forbidden fruit. But now, knowing his failure, he trusts God's word and responds to it. Adam's hope and faith now lies not in himself, but in God fulfilling his word. Adam trusts in the promises of God, even in the midst of judgment. And after this act by Adam, God himself acts. In verse 21, the Lord makes for Adam and Eve, we're told, garments of skins, and he clothed them. The Lord shows to Adam and Eve kindness. He provides their needs as they are to leave the garden. Adam and Eve have done nothing to deserve this. It's unearned. In fact, more than that, Adam and Eve have actively lost any claim to God's kindness. God would be completely in his rights to destroy them, but instead he acts in grace, loving them even at the cost of other creatures. We still see this grace towards us today. God, in his providence, provides for sinful human beings. I wonder how many of us take for granted the food that we eat or the houses that we live in, yet they are provided by God's common grace to humanity. It's one of the reasons why we thank God before we eat a meal, because we should be truly grateful for everything that he gives to us. Yet there are also clues here of a further act of grace which is going on. You see, you need to remember that Adam and Eve had already tried to clothe themselves, hadn't they? Back in verse 7, after they eat the fruit, they sew fig leaves together to try and cover themselves up. In order to try and hide their guilt and shame, they attempt to deal with their fallenness by themselves. Now, God, seeing these fig leaves, provides an alternative. 
He rejects Adam and Eve's own attempt to deal with their sin. He sets the standards and says, as it were, no, if you're going to be covered, then this is the covering you need. And he does so from animal skins. A deliberate contrast with the fig leaves that came before. This is the first recorded death that we have in Genesis. And so to cover up the guilt of humanity, a death will now be necessary. It isn't fully developed yet, but there is a hint of the animal sacrifices which are to come, and even greater than that, of the cross which is to come. But the main point is that human efforts, human attempts, are not enough to deal with sin. Later on, the prophet Isaiah will call on our own works as filthy rags. God will set the standard for what is necessary. And by ourselves, we cannot meet the standard. And then graciously, God fulfills the standard on behalf of those who put their trust in him. This is such a wonderful blessing from the Lord to be clothed by him. The idea of being clothed by God finds its fulfillment in the New Testament. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. To be clothed by God is ultimately to be clothed in perfect righteousness. It is to be viewed by him as he views his own son, Jesus Now, I'm not saying that this has happened to Adam and Eve in these verses, but God has shown the direction that the rest of the Bible is heading in. So what we see in these two verses is that despite sin, the relationship continues between God and humanity. It is a microcosm or a mini picture of the whole relationship between God and his faithful throughout the ages, from the Old Testament church to the New Testament church. We know we cannot make up for the rebellion of sin ourselves. We have fallen from the Lord's righteousness and holy standards, and they are now too high for us to meet. But we have faith in him. We trust in the promises of God. We trust in his faithfulness to act. And the Lord sustains us. Even in a fallen world, he clothes us and keeps us. He maintains the relationship with us. And that leads us on to our final point, the love behind the banishment from Eden. Now, it might seem strange to say that Adam is lovingly expelled from the garden, but just note the urgency of verse 22. Have a look at it in your Bibles. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Adam must not. It cannot be allowed. He must not be allowed to eat from the tree of life and live forever. Yes, because he must face the consequences of sin. A sinful human being cannot be in the presence of God. They are fully deserving of death. But also because otherwise humanity would never have been able to be redeemed. He would have been stuck in an eternal fallen state. By expelling them, God is saving humanity from an eternal living death. 
always a slave to sin, always separated from God's presence, always under judgment, always prone to rebellion. It would be as close as you can get on earth to hell. Edward Young puts it this way, the expulsion from paradise, therefore, was a punishment inflicted for man's good, intended while exposing him to temporal death to preserve him from eternal death. Even in this act, the mercy of God and his concern for mankind appear. Genesis 3 ends with promises unfulfilled. There is an expectation of more to come. Humanity has a relationship with God, but is outside his presence. God's purposes for creation have not been fulfilled. There is still a serpent crusher to come, one who will defeat evil once and for all. And the rest of the Old Testament is looking for the one who can fulfill these promises. Perhaps the serpent crusher will be Cain or Abel. No, Cain gives in to the serpent and he kills Abel. Well, then perhaps it will be Noah. He saves his people after all from judgment. No, he gets drunk and passes out. Well, perhaps it will be David who killed the enemy's champion and reigned for the Lord. No, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. Throughout the rest of the Bible, there is a gaping hole needing to be filled until finally Jesus comes. The promises are fulfilled and Jesus announces, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like Adam, Jesus is subject to death. But in his death, Jesus takes the blow from the flaming sword of God's wrath. He crushes the head of the serpent. He clothes his people in righteousness. He tears open the curtain to the holy of holy and gives away past the cherubim and leads us back into God's presence. Life outside the garden is hard and painful. But God does it under the principle that for those who love God, all things work together for God for good. God uses the curse of death to redeem us, to rescue us from sin and bring us back into his presence. Humanity is lovingly expelled from the garden so one day we might be lovingly brought back in again. God's plan is not lost. The fall of man is not the end. As we have seen, God continues his relationship with us. The expulsion means that there is a future, that there will be a future where God dwells with his people. And the Bible says that it will be a bigger and better thing than even Eden was. Not just a garden, but a promised garden city, the new Jerusalem. Let us just finish with these words from the book of Revelation. 
I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it Nothing impure will ever enter into it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, this is our future. This is where Jesus is leading us. Our future is to be with our Lord for eternity on a new earth with him, glorifying and enjoying him forever. Let us pray.